Episode 5, Their Finest Hour. Or why a stubborn silence from Winston Churchill represents the most important couple of minutes in British history. When it comes to writing about the Second World War, the historian suddenly encounters the problem of a lack of secondary sources. You go into the history section of the airport bookshop and have they got a single book on World War II? I mean, you think there might be perhaps one slim volume on the fighter aircraft of the Battle of Britain or sex spies of the Nazis, just one copy of Adolf Hitler's Anger Management or the eBay Guide to Nazi Insignia. No, we've got lots of stuff on the First Reich and uh, a few books on the Second, but no, I've never heard of this Third Reich you're interested in. Such has been the impact of the war upon our culture and our national consciousness that it's become hard to separate out the recycled myths from some of the occasional grubby realities. The British people really did rise to the challenge of the Second World War, showing great unity and courage in a just and necessary war. But British airmen didn't really hide out in a French cafe run by the resistance and waitresses in stockings and suspenders saying allo allo in comedy French accents. Judging from the popular culture that has grown up around the Blitz, the initial effects of the bombs was to make everyone talk in exaggerated Cockney accents. Gore blimey lover duck. Them jerry bombs is raining like cats and dogs tonight. Hello, Queen Mum, you come to entertain us down here? Here, budge up, Reg. Her Majesty's going to give us a sing-song. Take it away, Liz. My old man's a Marquis. He wears a Marquis hat. He wears some Marquis trousers. And he lives in an apartment in Clarence House. Footnote. This is slightly incorrect on several points. One, her father was an Earl, not a Marquis. It just doesn't scan as well. Two, she wouldn't have been known as the Queen Mother until after the death of her husband in 1952. And three, Queen Elizabeth did not, in fact, go into the underground to lead a sing-along Cockney knees up. It seems incredible that Neville Chamberlain was not completely clear that Hitler and the Nazis were the bad guys from the outset. I mean, if you ever watch a film and a character appears wearing a Nazi armband, that's always a sure sign that he'll turn out to be one of the baddies later on. Unfortunately, Chamberlain was as incompetent at fighting the war as he had been at avoiding it, and in May 1940, after Britain was humiliated by the German invasion of Norway and Denmark, Labour decided to force a division, and a hundred Conservatives voted against the government or abstained. You have sat too long for any good you have been doing. Depart, I say, and let us have done with you. In the name of God, go! All right. You don't have to be like that. Chamberlain wanted his fellow appeaser, the one-armed Lord Halifax, to be the new Prime Minister. So did the King. But this would only work if the other obvious candidate, Winston Churchill, was prepared to serve under him. Churchill, Halifax and Chamberlain then came together for a meeting that would determine the whole nature of the war. Chamberlain asked Churchill if he would serve under Lord Halifax. Churchill sensed that this was an attempted stitch-up. With sailors drowning at sea, Winston could hardly say no and refuse to do his bit. But if he said yes, then completely the wrong sort of man would be handed the job of leading the country at a time of deep national crisis. So he simply said nothing and stared out of the window. 
Was he thinking about it, they wondered? Had he not heard the question? The loaded silence endured for two whole minutes. Finally, Halifax could bear the embarrassment no longer. I suppose it might be difficult for a member of the House of Lords to become Prime Minister at such time. The appeaser had cracked first, and so the King was instructed to send for Winston Churchill. That day, the Nazis rolled into Holland, Belgium and Luxembourg. France was completely exposed. It was just as well the new Prime Minister always enjoyed a challenge. By the 16th of May, the German officers were advancing further than their orders permitted. The French Prime Minister telephoned Winston Churchill and told him that France was beaten. Churchill immediately flew to Paris to try and stiffen their resolve, but witnessed the French government burning its archives and preparing to evacuate the capital. Where is the strategic reserve? He asked them. There is none, they replied. Churchill later described this as the most shocking moment of his life. When he finally heard that France had surrendered, he wept. On the 14th of June, the Germans entered Paris, and Ingrid Bergman stood up Humphrey Bogart at the railway station. Before long, Hitler was being filmed in the French capital for the German newsreels. OK, Mr Hitler, ein Führer in Paris, take one. Uh, try not to look too smug. Not too smug. OK, yeah. Yeah, okay, th that's nice where you're standing, but I think it might be even better if you had the Eiffel Tower behind you, uh, because I think the Eiffel Tower really says Paris, don't you? Oh, yeah, okay. So, standing here, looking at what I've conquered, exceeding the achievements of Frederick the Great, Bismarck, and Hindenburg. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect, but you're looking a teensy bit smug again. At the end of its two centuries as a superpower, Great Britain led the world through its darkest hour, refusing to give up even when all seemed completely lost. Even after the British Tommy had been captured, the struggle went on. If the films are to be believed, every British prisoner of war constructed a twin-blade helicopter out of yoghurt cartons, landed it at Piccadilly Circus, hopped out and asked to be sent straight back to the front. In 1944, a mass breakout occurred at Stalag III Luft at Zagen in Poland, in which 76 prisoners got out before the 77th was spotted, and a panicky German guard, probably with a scar and a barking Alsatian, raised the alarm. As anyone who's been stuck in front of the telly on Christmas Day will remember, the Great Escape ends with the cold-blooded massacre of 50 of those who tried to escape. Do you think it was worth the price? says Flight Lieutenant Henley at the end of the film. Group Captain Ramsey replies, Depends on your point of view. This clipped, understated British response captures the entire moral debate between the contrasting responses to Nazism. What did those 50 prisoners achieve by escaping and ultimately being murdered? Did they not also have a responsibility to give themselves the best chance of returning safely to their wives and families by sitting out the war as prisoners? That was the pragmatic reasoning of collaborationist Vichy France. But surely the very level of evil of a culture that murdered captured prisoners in cold blood meant that every individual had a higher duty to oppose that regime by whatever means it could, however suicidal. That had been the position of Britain since 1940. 
Unfortunately, not as many people dwell on this existential dimension of the film as the bit where Steve McQueen jumps the fence on his motorbike. The struggle in which liberal democracy took on fascist totalitarianism has since been refashioned as the definitive battle between good and evil. All the hypocrisy and moral ambiguities that total war entails were blown away by the Holocaust and the Nazi and Japanese conduct of the war. No wonder the British have wanted to pour over it again and again in films and comics and displays by the Bombing of Dresden Reenactment Society. For the ageing generation that lived through such an incredible six years, it's no wonder that the war has continued to be the defining experience of their lives. But for the rest of us, the vast majority, it is perhaps time to let go. It's important to remember history, but not to live in it. Britain standing alone in 1940 was the result of a humiliating military disaster. It's not the basis for a European foreign policy for another hundred years. Today, Germany is a modern culture democracy, making a major contribution to art, science and reliable motorcars, and we demean ourselves more than them by printing tabloid headlines about Hitler and the Blitz every time we have to play them at football. Having said that, it doesn't seem likely that the British are going to change, so it might just be simpler if the Germans just threw in the towel and agreed to play along with all our tiresome wartime stereotypes forevermore. It would certainly make the European Parliament more entertaining if every time a German MEP spoke, he had to put a little comb to his upper lip before shouting in a comedy German accent. Achtung! Achtung! Hand hoch, Schweinhund! For you, the war is over, I think, yeah? Oh, that's wonderful. Do the walk. And the arm. Do the goose-step thingy with your arm in the air. We have ways of making you talk. Do we have to do this? World War II has acquired a unique and hallowed place in British history. Not purely because the war itself turned out to be so just, but also because of the extraordinary heroism of the servicemen and civilians caught up in it. It is not possible to record all the acts of courage and self-sacrifice that ordinary people made for the common good. Women firefighters who stood their ground when buildings were crumbling all around them. Teenagers who toiled away for hours, helping move the rubble in the search for survivors of the Blitz. Pensioners ready to die firing a shotgun at the enemy, as long as I take one with me. The ordinary British people showed themselves to be resourceful, unselfish and modestly but incredibly heroic in a way that it is hard to imagine from that snarling driver who made obscene gestures to you the other day as he cut you up at the traffic lights. Never again would there be such a sense of unity and purpose in Great Britain. Back in 1940, Winston Churchill had said that future generations would look back and say this was their finest hour. And he was quite right. Britain had shown an absolute determination to continue fighting the war at all costs, even from Canada should the British Isles be overrun. In 1940, the French army had fought with determination and courage, and their soldiers had continued to battle on after the fall of Paris. But the French leadership had been resigned to defeat from the moment the Germans broke through at Sedan. English suggestions of making a stand in Paris or moving the government to French North Africa were met with a spineless Gallic shrug. So what was the difference between the resolute mood in Britain and the defeatism that overtook France? Well, the answer can be summed up in two words. Winston Churchill. Churchill's entire life had been building towards this. He was a natural fighter, who in peacetime had often crassly opted for conflict 
when conciliation would have been smarter. But now it was a war between democracy and fascism, and his pugnacious certainty was an inspiration. In the 1930s, he had sounded histrionic. Now he was simply historic. On the 4th of June, he rose in the House of Commons and set out at great length the series of disasters that had befallen the British army. The message was bleak, the mood was sombre. But his detailed explanation of Britain's hopeless position was not softening them up for the announcement of peace overtures or some compromise with the conquerors of Europe. The point was that no matter what happened, the fight would continue. We shall defend our island whatever the cost might be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the fields and in the street, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. In June 1940, Britain seemed all but beaten. It had a shattered army with no equipment, and yet somehow its MPs were standing in the House of Commons, cheering. A Britain led by Chamberlain, or Lord Halifax, would probably have made a humiliating peace with a triumphant Hitler. The long, embarrassing silence that secured Winston Churchill the leadership of the free world was surely the most important two minutes in British history. <laughs>